people, welcome to The Raw Roast, where we have real conversations about faith and life over a good cup of coffee. My name is Ben Tyvel, and I'm your host this week. And today I'm excited to welcome my good friend uh, and the director of Center for Pastor Theologians, uh, Dr. Joel Lawrence. Joel, that might be the first time I have ever called you doctor. <laughs> Even when you were in my theology class, you yeah, didn't call it may me have doctor. been. It, so it's long overdue. Uh, but Joel, he has done uh, his PhD study from uh, Cambridge University, and he's one of the founding fellows at the CPT. Uh, and I got this off right off the website, so this should be correct, right? I assume so. <laughs> and uh, he previ- previously served uh, on the faculty of Bethel Seminary, and that may even be current. I, I teach there still, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's even a current thing. Yep. And uh, you were also the senior pastor uh, for almost eight years, I believe, at Central Baptist Church. And you were also on staff here at Calvary as the teaching pastor. I was know, a long back in time a, ago. Another lifetime, it <laughs> seems now. Which is really where, uh, you know, both in class, um, but also then, you know, my family and I, we had our first introduction to Calvary up at the White Bear campus, yeah. um, listening to you preach and getting to know you guys. And it's just been a joy over the years to, to connect with um, you on a personal level, but also with your family. You guys are great friends and I'm excited to have you here. So there's certainly a whole bunch more that I could say about you, Joel, professionally, but I think, you know, for, at least for me, <laughs> more importantly, um, I just wanted to um, thank you for being just a committed, heartfelt follower of Jesus. You're someone in my life who, who I look up to that I feel like you think deeply about formation, about how to live, you know, with conviction in, uh, in, in our world, in this highly, highly charged, tension filled world, you know, really how to live in the way of Jesus and how to, how we do that individually, but also certainly how we do that as a community, as the church. And so I've so appreciated our conversations over the years, uh, the way that you've helped me walk, uh, through those tension-filled thoughts and uh, and that formation in my own life. Um, so I thank you for being here today, spending time with us. I'm, I'm wondering if we could just start off by talking uh, briefly about your work at the CPT, at, at the Center for Pastor Theologians. Um, just kind of, you know, mission, vision of the organization. Do you want to just share briefly about that? Yeah, sure. First, thanks for having me here and um, grateful for you, your, your, your family, are very important to the Lawrences. So we are grateful for you guys. And it's fun to do this. Yeah, fun this just fun. To, We had these conversations all the time. It's fun to, to put a recording it. on it and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, at this, the Center for Pastor Theologians, I've been, as you said, I was a founding fellow. I've gone, I've been a part of it for about 13 years. Uh, the organization itself is about 15 years old. Um, our, our purpose is to, our, our mission statement is equipping pastors to be theologians for today's complex world. Um, the world is getting more complex. I think that's probably fairly uh, obvious for most of us. Yeah. Because the world is getting more complex, pastoring is getting more complex. Uh, it's it's hard to be a pastor these days in it so is. many ways. Yeah. And what we want to do as an organization is come alongside pastors to encourage them in their vocation as theological leaders of the church. So um, there's a, a great quote by a a uh, theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who says pastors have become a quivering mass of availability. Hmm. Uh, We don't really know what we are. We have all kinds of identities that all kinds of expectations are foisted upon us. Mm -hmm. And we're not, too many of us aren't operating out of a core identity and a sense really of what our calling is. And so what we want to do is we get pastors into fellowships that are ongoing so that there's deep relationships that are formed And then out of that, kind of a depth of understanding of our vocation as theological shepherds of the church, to lead the church theologically, to be able to understand the complexities of the world, not just react to the world around us, but truly understand our calling, the calling of the church in the world, and how we are to be faithful to Jesus in that shepherding of of Christ's flock. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a great discipleship model, honestly. It, yeah, for, it is. For a specific group, right, <clears throat> it, it, of, of called it individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think this is something, you know, 
I don't know if all of your hearers know just how lonely it can be to be a pastor, how how hard it can be a pa- be a pastor, how stressful it can be. All all of the things that what what we have found is um, if you get pastors truly into enduring relationships mm-hmm. over time, yeah. that there is a a structure that is built in of of ongoing encouragement that that helps them develop form stay committed to the calling even in the in the challenging times so yeah. when we get our pastors together there's all kinds of war stories yeah. and challenging things that people are facing but there's also a lot of prayer for one another encouragement of one another and so it's a uh, it's something that we think for the the good of the church mm-hmm. is is uh, is valuable what we want to do to to help serve the church and with my pastoral life uh, that I have had, as well as being a seminary professor, um, it's it's a sweet opportunity for me to serve out of some ways that I think some experience that I've gained over the years and um, just to serve pastors. It's great. Encourage the church. So appreciate it. I, that model, I, I love that. I mean, it's it's so accessible, right? Yeah. Certainly not just to pastors, but to, to Jesus followers. Yeah. I mean, to uh, find yourself in a in a space of, of committed individuals that are about formation, yep. that are helping us stay committed to the way of Jesus, right? That we're, we're not in this alone. We're, we are meant to be uh, on this mission together. Yeah. And uh, so I, I appreciate that model. And I, so I think even if you're listening and you're not a pastor, uh, I think the things that you guys are doing, the the way that you're diving in, and again, that you're encouraging specifically uh, pastors, but I think much can be gleaned, you know, even if that uh, is is not your vocation. So I appreciate all the work that you guys are doing. Um, so for our conversation here today, there's so much that we could talk about. I uh, it was hard for me to kind of narrow down, uh, you know, over <laughs> over the years of our conversations, I I'd had a list of about you know twenty different things that I would love for our listeners to hear. Joel's heart on this particular issue. Uh, but you know what what I wanted to jump into, and it's it's very timely because just yesterday, uh, Pastor Christy Becker here at Calvary, she preached from Romans thirteen, the, those first thirteen verses, I believe. and she did a great job uh, with a a really difficult passage, especially, you know, in the time that we're living in. So just want to give a shout out to Christy. Nice job. Uh, and just in, to encourage her, but I wanted to pick it up there. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, in, again, in our, in our day, as we approach a passage like Romans 13, Paul's doing something in this passage that I think can be a little bit confusing at times. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts on this passage? What do you feel like Paul's doing? What's his What's his goal with with this passage? Yeah, um, uh, and I, I haven't I haven't listened to Christie's sermon, so I don't okay. know exactly her, her take. Shout out to Christie as well, <laughs> former neighbor of mine. We used yeah, to live that's right. We used to live down the street, so yep. I'm I'm definitely a fan. But let me just give you my my kind of overview of what's going. Here. I think the first the first mistake that we make when we come to Romans 13 is we lift it out as kind of a solo treatise on church and state. And we come to Romans 13, we don't really understand how it's functioning in the overall flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. Okay. So, so do you mean in, that we tend to like just land in Romans yeah, 13? Just, and kind of isolate it yeah. and think that it's doing something that that I think when we understand it in its context, it's, it's actually not doing what the common interpretation yeah. is. Right? Okay. So Romans 12 is talking to us at the beginning about being living sacrifices, right? Offering ourselves as living sacrifices. It's talking about love, love must be sincere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then you get to the end and Paul is talking about our enemies. Yeah. And he's talking about how we are to, to overcome our enemies and how mm. we're to love our enemies. And then he goes from talking about loving our enemies into conversation about the government. And I think if we miss that connection, then we get off track in our understanding of what's going on in Romans 13. Um, my understanding of it is Paul is talking about how we overcome our enemies. And then at the end of Romans 12, do not be over, 
overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and then talks about the governing authorities, Mm. which in Paul's theology, and I think in the theology of the the scriptures as Mm -hmm. a whole, the governing authorities, the empires, are always cast as structures that are set up against God's rule, right? So the Babylon is a symbol of this. You go from the Tower of Babel in Genesis to the kingdom of Babylon throughout Israel's history. And then Babylon, of course, reemerges at the end of the scriptures and the book of Revelation as the symbol of the structures that are set against God. And what's going on in Revelation, John is using Babylon as a symbol of Rome. And so Rome is consistently seen through the scriptures as an empire that is set up in opposition to God's rule. Okay. So I think if the way we normally interpret Romans 13 is that the government has a place next to the church in the positive work of God, the kingdom work of God, I think Paul will look at that and and scratch his head and say, what what, what are you talking about? This is, Mm. this is the Roman empire that we're talking about here. Yeah. This, this isn't something that we look to as a vehicle of the kingdom of God. Right. That so, would not be anywhere in Paul's mind okay. of how to interpret the, the Roman Empire or any of the empires of the earth. Now, what Paul is saying is in God's providence, he, as I, I sometimes say, God uses jujitsu on yeah. these empires yeah. to do things for his sake Right. that the empires themselves aren't set to do. You see that again very clearly throughout the Old Testament, how God uses empires often in ways that the Israelites hate because he's saying, I'm going to raise up this empire to come upon you and bring my judgment upon you, not bring my kingdom in through these structures. I'm going to utilize them for certain purposes. Okay. And I think what Paul is saying here is we need to understand that the, the Roman Empire apart from its own desires, is being used by God to do certain things. But they're not the positive things of bringing in the kingdom of God in that okay. language that we often use. They're the, if I can put it this way, they're the negative things. They're the, it's the restrainer of, of chaos. Right? It's, that's the sword-bearing work okay. that, this, that the state has. So, and, if, so yeah. if Rome is not, <clears throat> so if the, the governing authority is not set up to kind of help or bring a, bring about the, the kingdom of God, but yeah. they are set up like like you're saying. God is using them, yep. in in a sense to to do something. Like, can you speak a little bit more into that space? Like, so then, what is the the, the something? The purpose? Yeah, what yeah. is the something it's that the, God is in Romans 13? It's the sword, right? He's saying that the the the, the kingdom of the world, the, the, the governing authorities, uh, God has established them. I don't think that means God has, God elects every person or God establishes every Caesar. Right. That means God has established this structure in a fallen world that is in rebellion against God, yep. where we have rejected God's rule over us in his kindness and in his mercy. He has established a certain structure of organization to restrain the evil of the human heart. And that's the sword. So this is okay. the police function of the state. This is the, the organizing of the state for basic structures so that our world doesn't fall into absolute chaos, which is what would happen if we were left completely to our own devices right. of the human heart, of the rebellious human heart. So the sword function is, is the proper function of the state. But again, that is not the function of bringing in the kingdom of God. That's the church's work. So what Paul is saying here when he's saying, submit yourself to the governing authorities, I don't think he's saying, recognize that the governing authorities are God's vehicle for his positive kingdom purposes and therefore submit yourselves to them. He's saying, recognize the function that these have and don't try yourselves to do that function. You are not policing the world. You don't bear the sword. You Mm. bear the cross. Those are two very different ways of, of living yeah. in the world, right? So we are cross bearers. We are not sword bearers. So I think in a sense what Paul is saying here is don't be insurrectionists. 
Meaning, don't don't try to overthrow Rome so that you can take over sword power right. in the world. Which is which is what they thought was going to happen all along, right? Right. And this is this is the problem that the church yeah. has had throughout our history hmm. is we have thought that what we are promised is sword power, is a, a, a prominence in the world by which we can dictate how the world goes and how the world runs um, and how we can be in power and in authority in order mm-hmm. to utilize the powers of the world for the bringing in of the kingdom. That is very different than how Jesus understood the kingdoms of the world yeah. and how he approached the kingdoms of the world. And you yeah. go to John 17 and 18, and yeah. the, I think the interaction between Jesus and Pilate is hugely important for our understanding of the work of the church vis-a-vis the state. Okay. And where Jesus consistently refused to take sword power, we have consistently striven, striven, strove, whatever. <laughs> Let's say, <Yeah. laughs> we, we have consistently grasped yeah, at the sword. Right. And so the way that Romans 13 has often been taught to us in the history of the church I think is actually the opposite of what Paul is saying to us. It has been taught to us as the state is a governing authority established by God for his kingdom good. Therefore, Christians ought to take state power in order to reign, bring the reign of the kingdom of God in through the the structures of the state. And that seems to me to be the opposite of what the testimony of the scriptures and particularly the New Testament okay. are telling us. So this, I, I've, we've talked about this before, so I, I'm not in full mind blown, you know, uh, state right now, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like, but, but there, there's always a bit of that that goes on when I, when I do talk to you, it's, it's a great, uh, a great thing to challenge uh, just my own formation in the way that I, that I think. I think there are probably some listeners right now that this is brand new. This is just a different way of yeah. thinking about government, thinking about, uh, the, well, certainly this passage, yeah. but even just the, the way in which, uh, you know, God's plan for how he is to bring about his kingdom purposes in the world. And again, that, that relationship that we have maybe all our all all of our lives have thought about you know between the political structures of the day and of the church you know and, and again what that relationship has looked like and how we've again for many of us have probably thought about the two kind of going hand in hand and the political structures of the day really you know being part of how god wants to bring about his kingdom purposes in the world like that's a very that is a very different way of of thinking, at least at least for me. Yeah. When especially when we first started having these conversations, that really challenged how I thought about you know both local and national government, but just even my own role in in society, right? In as a as a U.S. Uh, citizen, yeah. right? Uh, these these other ways that um that I think about even just my own identity, my 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 individual identity, but certainly even my communal identity. But so in this conversation, and I think this is a good transition into, uh, you know, some of this work that you've done over, over the last years here, uh, this term that you use called Sabbath politics, I, I think fits right in with what we're talking about here. Uh, would you be willing to kind of move into that space, you know, from this conversation that we're having, what, maybe what is it? And, and I do think like, even just getting into that, those practical pieces of, okay, here, here's, here's a different way of thinking of, of what Jesus is actually calling me to, to do and, and be in relationship to, uh, to the government or, you know, to, to the local authorities. Uh, but what is that? What do I do? You know, so if, if it's not this, then then what? So um, answer that real quick with one thought, and okay. then and then I can kind of back it up with some thinking about Sabbath and, and Sabbath politics. I, I think it's really important that we have a distinction in our minds between the kingdom of God and the common good. 
And in a lot of today's kind of how does the church engage with the world, those two things are, are often collapsed into one another. Um, that the, the, the common good, the work we do in, a, in our life as citizens of, a, of, a, mm-hmm. of an earthly kingdom is kingdom work. And I would, I would disagree with that. I do think that we as citizens in a, in a earthly kingdom, what I've just said about Romans 13, even though I do think and we recognize that, that the state is a structure that is set up against the rule of God, that doesn't mean that we don't have a natural kingdom citizenship right. role to play yeah. in the world. That's our common good work. That's our supporting the best government that we can mm-hmm. in the common good work of what the government is called to do. But that is different than divinizing the state, giving it divine authority for the positive good of the kingdom, okay. and then and then um, engaging our hearts in state politics as if the kingdom of God is at stake yeah. in the way that whoever is elected will either determine or not whether or not the kingdom of God is, is coming in, yeah. right? That's when we get into political partisanship and polarization in ways that I think are, are very unhealthy. And it's because I fear we have, we have collapsed the kingdom of God into the common good. So what I'm not hmm. saying is that we don't have any role to play in the society as followers of Jesus. What I am saying is we have to be really clear yeah. in our minds, theologically, biblically, what that role is. Okay. So that's the first thing I would say. Now, getting back to, to uh, Sabbath politics. So a number of years back, I was, I was just, I, I was concerned. I've been concerned for a long time of the, how the church understands its presence in the world, how the church has been captured by, by kingdom of this world politics in ways that are killing the church and dividing the church. And we're experiencing it now in, in new ways, but it's not, it's not that it just happened in the last couple of years. It's been there for a long time, but it's, it's come out and it's become more visible in certain ways. And, um, and I, I, I was just doing some reflecting on the biblical story. What is the biblical story of the government of government? And that's where a lot of this thinking kind of started to fall into place. Actually, the biblical story of government is earthly governments are these oppositional structures to the reign of God. They're, hmm. That's how they're consistently portrayed throughout the scriptures. Um, and so I just kind of kept tracing the story back and back and back until I got to Genesis 1, right? I mean, yeah. it's a restart right. <laughs> in right. the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I read through Genesis 1. This is how God is ordering the world. And what is politics? Politics is is how we order our lives, right? Right. It's how we structure our lives. So politics is what the state does, but in a sense, politics is what the titles do. When you guys have to get your kids from this event yeah. to that event, it's you're, you're ordering your lives in a particular way. Right? Trying. Trying. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, you just got too many kids. Yeah, I that's, know. that's the thing. I know. Um, so that's what politics ultimately is, right? This is why, you know, Aristotle famously says we are political animals, because hmm. we are social beings. And if there is a society, then there has to be organization. Structure. There has to be structure. There has to be order. Genesis 1 is God ordering the world under his political rule. Right? He is ordering the world to operate in a particular way so that human society can flourish. Right. Right. Genesis 2, the first three verses, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, the work of ordering, so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. He, it says there are actually four Hebrew words that you could use to describe rest here. One is physical rest. One is kind of resting from carrying a burden. This one is Sabbath, right? He Sabbathed hmm. on the day. And what Sabbath means in the ancient Near East context is a king at rest. Right? A king could be at rest when his rule, his reign, was ordered properly the needs of the people were taken care of, mm. right? And there could be peace. There could be shalom, in the, the Hebrew term. So Sabbath is the prerequisite of 
shalom. Sabbath is everything is accounted for, everything is ordered, everyone is provided for, everyone is protected. So my interpretation of Genesis 2 is this is the Sabbath rule, Sabbath politics of God. That God created the world to be ordered in a particular way with him as the king. Yeah. Under whom, as we are living under him in submission to him, he would provide everything for us. We would still have to labor, right? That's a part of the created world. Mm -hmm. But our labor would be not the provision for ourselves, scrapping with the earth to try to get enough out of it. Our labor would be going out and bringing in what God has provided. And it's the picture of manna later in the Old Testament, right? God provided the manna, but he didn't bring it to the Israelites in their tent and and then feed them. They had to go out. They had to collect it but God was the provider. So this picture of Sabbath is a picture of all is well. The, the kingdom is as it should be. The subjects are living in peace and prosperity and provision. And God is the Lord and we are living under his lordship. And there would be structures under that by which that reign would be lived out, but they wouldn't be structures of competition. They wouldn't be structures of power. They would be structures of Sabbath. What happens then in Genesis 3 is humans rebel against the Sabbath reign of God, and we establish our own political structures. That's Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Cain goes out and builds a city. Mm -hmm. He has lost the Sabbath rule of God, and now he's got to build a counterfeit structure Because he's afraid. Because when we leave the Sabbath presence of God, what happens is we are filled with fear because we know now we're vulnerable. That's exactly what Cain knows, right? When God says, you know, Cain says to God, what if somebody wants to to kill me? God says, I'll put a mark on you. And they know if they kill you that I'll I'll revenge them sevenfold. And I think at one level, Cain's like, well, what good is that to me? I'm already going to be dead, right? But what he's feeling is, vulnerability. We don't have Sabbath anymore. Hmm. So now what we have to do is we have to create our own structures. Mm -hmm. We have to create our own politics. And you can trace the story from Genesis 4 in which violence comes into the world, competition comes into the world, death comes into the world, Um, the need for me to secure my own, my own people, then build structures of my own self-governance, which my own self-governance is I'm going to provide and protect for, for my people. Yeah. You see the story of humanity starting to coalesce into tribes and nations right. that are in rebellion. I, I believe that tribes and nations are a part of the God, God's plan, but not in structures of resistance to God, wherein we are having to provide for ourselves. Okay. So I talk about Sabbath politics versus East of Eden politics, right? Because when God, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, he casts them out of the garden and they go East, East. of Eden. Okay. And it says that Cain is a restless wanderer upon the earth. Okay. And for me, that's the human condition. Restless wanderer. We are restless wanderers that's upon the earth. a pretty good earth, description. Disconnected from the yeah. Sabbath reign of God. Yeah. And therefore in our restlessness... We are having to do all of the work that God was to do for us. Now we're doing it for ourselves, Hmm. and that creates competition, power struggle, um, scarcity of resources, fear. All of that stuff comes into human history. So how do you talk about uh, kind of that initial decision with Adam and Eve at the the tree when they— when they do what they did, how, yeah. how do you, cause you talked about Cain and kind of what, how, how you see his story and, and how he's playing that out, you know, connected, connected to this. What, how do you talk about, about that decision? Yeah. So Adam and Eve are, are, are made an offer, right? The right. offer is you can be like God. Right. And so behind that obviously is an appeal and, and a, a Satan is recasting reality. For yeah. them, at the heart of which is God is not to be trusted. That's the heart of that appeal. 
God knows that there is something better for you. Right. And he's not allowing you to have he's that. Holding out on he's you. holding out on you. Therefore, you can have a better existence if you will do what I say. Yeah. If you will follow my word, then you will find this. And, it, and it, Adam and Eve take of the tree, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve didn't have the knowledge of good and evil prior to this. They knew God. They did not know good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is, I think, the biblical symbol of human autonomy, of us becoming our own gods, our yeah. own judges, yeah. our, having our own moral compass mm -hmm. that we now operate out of, mm -hmm. which is our own knowledge of good and evil, which inevitably we twist as the good is that which serves me and the evil is that which takes away from me. Mm -hmm. And so now what we have in the world following Genesis 3, following Adam and Eve's rebellion, is going from a communal life of Adam and Eve under the rule of God, meant to live that out across the earth, be fruitful and multiply, spreading the rule of God, the mm -hmm. Sabbath rule of God, in that, in that family, in that community, in that nation, now what we have is autonomous individuals, each seeking to be our own God, mm -hmm. living out of our own self-referential moral compass yeah. that we have in our own hearts because we stole it, that then is the driving formative factor of, of human history. So th as I talked about kind of the, the, the story of the, the nations in the scripture, Right? As I trace it back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, there is a foundational story being told there about the nation that God intended, the political rule that God intended, and then the nations, the political rules that have come out of what God, or come against what God intended, and that that now is the whole story of Scripture. Mm. It's the reign of God. Versus, or I, maybe I should put it better this way, the reign of humans versus the reign of God, right? Our rebellion against God's rule, our refusal to be under God, our refusal to live in his presence and according to his righteousness, rather to live out of our own autonomy. Autonomy, of course, it's from two Greek words. Auto is self mm -hmm. and namos is law. It's self-law. It's our own desire to be our own lawmakers and lawgivers rather than live under the reign, the rule, the law of God. So you see the, the story of Israel track this way. They were intended to be a nation that didn't live according to its own rule, mm -hmm. that didn't live according to weapons and swords, that didn't trust in chariots and horses, but it went from being the nation of God under God's Sabbath rule to being a nation that wanted to be like the nations around it. We want to be like Egypt. We want to be like Babylon. Why? Because we're terrified yeah. of them. And we don't trust God right. that he will protect us. And so what do we do? We want our own king. We want our own weapons. We want our own army. We want to build up our own defenses so that we can guarantee for ourselves Protection, protection. self-preservation, self-preservation, right? which yeah. we're never supposed to live needing self-preservation because we were supposed to live in fellowship with Yahweh. Well, so some may come to the conversation or as they're listening, may, ha may be having the question of, well, because this is our reality, because we do live in, in this world where we're experiencing, you know, a, a, a function of of what you're talking about, right? A, a government that is in place to rule um, and, and being led by people who are, are leading from this autonomous place, right? This self-preservation place. So even if you have folks, let's say in office or in positions of rule who, who are Jesus followers, uh, there, there's still an element of this, that they are, they're still living in this tension, right? As, as all of us do. Uh, how do to kind of bring it into the space of kind of practical, you know, for lack of a better term, application, like, okay, so Joel, how do I 
what is the way of Jesus then when it comes to, uh, you know, today as we, we live in, we live where we live and I could use a whole bunch of words to describe. We all, we all know what, what the landscape looks like right now. So then how do I, as a, a genuine follower of Jesus, my, what do, what do I do day to day in terms of my relationship to, um, to the governing authorities, to, to the community in which I live that I know is, for, again, for lack of a better term, is, is fallen and has the aim for self-preservation. How do I, how do I live differently? Yep. So, <clears throat> um, I, I think, well, okay, let me, let me say this first. I, I think the, the key step here, the, and one of the things I think that has really hurt the American church is we don't have a good understanding of the church as this alternative nation to the kingdoms of the earth. I think what we see when, when Christ comes, he is a representative of the kingdom of God. He is not giving himself over to the kingdoms of the world, to the tremendous disappointment of his own followers, right? right? That's what they were and looking for. And disillusionment of his own followers. Yeah. They did not understand him. Right. Pilate did not understand him because Pilate was playing the power game. Mm-hmm. Pilate is analyzing whether or not Jesus is a threat to his power. Yeah. And Pilate says, you know what he says? He's not. That's the conclusion that Pilate comes to. And then he's pressured into crucifying Jesus because they say, well, he said he was the king and Pilate doesn't want to have to deal with that with Rome. And so, okay, we'll get rid of this guy. Pilate has seen zealots who are there to overthrow and take power. Right. And he knew Jesus wasn't that. He didn't know what Jesus was doing, but he's, he's put plenty of zealots on trial, insurrectionists on trial. And he's saying, this isn't that. And he was right. Because Jesus was founding a new community, a new nation. And so um, I think, and uh, this may not be super, super practical in the way that you're, you're looking. <laughs> I'm going to keep pushing you. People who've heard That's me okay. preach know that this is not my strength. This is getting, okay. getting practical. That's all right. But we need, uh, <laughs> we need this part too, for sure. What, what I think in 2021, with all that we are facing as the church, all the division, all of the discord, all of the different ways that we're responding, all of the different ways we've invested ourselves in politics on the left and on the right. What we need is a biblical vision of the church's presence in the world. Yeah. And that we are called to have a Sabbath presence in the world. And here's what that could look like. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's where I was going to go. Protection. What does that look like? Provision, preservation. If we believed that we were living under the Sabbath reign of God now, right? Mm-hmm. That we are the community that's supposed to be living under the Sabbath reign of God. Right. As a representative to yeah, the nation to, to the world yep. of a different reign, mm-hmm. what that would look like is what the New Testament outlines, which is there should be no poor among you. Hmm. That you use your resources because you believe that God will provide for his people you believe that, mm-hmm. therefore, you have a generosity of spirit. And it doesn't say in the New Testament that everyone will have the equal number of goods and, and wealth, but it does say there, it, is a, it is a shame to the church that there is poor mm. among you. Because what that demonstrates is you're not trusting in God. Mm. You're trusting in your own resources. So it would look like there should be no poor among us. Okay. We take care of our, of our own. Okay. We take care of the people in the congregation. That We take care of the church as a symbol to the world right. of, who, of, of who God's reign is. The second thing that it would look like in terms of political engagement is what I was getting at earlier around kingdom of God and, and common good. I, I, I am not one who says you should not vote if you're – a believer in Jesus. I, I am one that says you should not vote with the idea that the kingdom of God depends upon who you are going to elect. 
if we could take the temperature down on that, I think we would take some steps toward finding the true unity that we're called to have. I've often wondered why it is when Jesus prays in John 17 that we would be one, as he and his father are one, that we have become comfortable with the caveat to that being, unless you disagree about politics. We seem to have fallen into a a vision of the church where it is inevitable that we're going to be divided about politics. That seems to me to be rooted in a deep lack of connection to the spirit of God and the creative work that the spirit of God can do among us. And it seems to me to declare that we're operating out of our own human resources in so many ways in how we do church and how we do our, how we understand our, our life in the world. So I think, be, in, be engaged politically. Okay. Um, I think it's easier at a local level, frankly, than at a yeah. national level. Yeah. National level, it's so fraught. It's so, um, it, it's so theoretical in so many ways. I think our calling, if we do, as we have a kingdom good, mm-hmm. or excuse me, a common good calling, it's, at the, it's more at the local level. Okay. So I encourage people, if you're, as you're engaged in the in in politics, engage with a clear sense of common good, not kingdom. What is what do I believe is best for my neighbor? Knowing I can't take everything in the Bible and translate it into human politics, it doesn't work. What we can do is seek to serve our neighbor through common good political engagement that has behind it the clear understanding that this is not divine. The government is not divine, and i.e. as the work of God to bring in the kingdom. So we can do it as people who love our neighbor, mm-hmm. but not with the investment that divides the church along political lines. That's good. That's good. So the phrase that you that you said kind of in the, what we should not do or how we should not vote that you said something about, we shouldn't vote in a way where, where we're believing that our candidate, you know, the person we're voting for is going to somehow bring about or, or further the, the kingdom purposes or priorities in, in the world that I I just think that's so important, that distinction between, you know, kingdom priorities, common good, that for me has been, uh, has really changed and shaped the way that I think about, again, yeah, my own involvement, you know, in, or just my own political engagement, like you said, that I can be very involved. I can, uh, I, I can care. I can see that even as a, as part of the ultimate call that I have on my life as a Jesus follower to love my neighbor as myself. Yep. Um, and, and obviously to love the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, but the way that I can do that is to, is to vote in such a way that, you know, my, that my own conviction that I feel like this certain candidate is going to help bring about the common good for, for neighbor. And that comes from a place of love of neighbor. And that I think is so important. If you can, if we can work to detach some of that, um, you know, that, that view and that that belief, that core belief, really, that somehow this a political party or this yeah. uh, political candidate uh, is is bringing about kingdom. I, and, I, and and I and I think I, I agree. I think at, at the heart of that is we are not called to be sword bearers. We are called to be cross bearers. And I think that the American church in particular, and the American evangelical church over the last 40 years has too often uh, given itself over to the sword-bearing pursuit. Okay. I think that's been very, that's become very dangerous for us in our witness to the cross. So as we as we unfortunately look to, to end our conversation here, kind of, I'd love to hear on that note uh, a little bit, maybe two or three points around 
that idea of the church being a cross-bearing uh, presence in the world versus a, a sword-bearing. So I, I think a, a, a sword-bearing presence is east of Eden. It is seeking power in the worldly structures with maybe the the mindset, the the desire that that we can we can wield power in a particular way that's going to bring in kingdom good. I think what we've seen throughout history is that when the church grasps for the reins of power, we don't translate we don't translate power into something good. Power translates us into something okay. that we're not called to well, be. What's one way that you feel like the church has sought power? Well, I, I think. Um, you know, we can go. We can go throughout the history of the church. We can go the Crusades. We can go to Nazi Germany. We can go okay. to um, the Moral Majority. We can go to lots of different places where the church, in different ways, has sought to shape the culture and the morality of the culture in a Christian ethic kind of a way, yep. but inevitably, inevitably makes all manner of compromises in order to do that. I mean, it has to. has to, yep. because that's how it works. Right. That's, that's how these, this is the operating system of the kingdoms of this world. Okay. Um, again, Jesus refused all of that. He was offered many times. He was offered to, they were lift him up and take him to be the king. Mm-hmm. And he, and he refused he bore the cross because that's the Sabbath way. That's the peaceable way. True divine peace comes not through the structures of earthly power, but through the reign of God, which is powerful, but is not East of Eden power, is not competitive power, is not uh, the power that strives for self. It's the it's the love that gives mm-hmm. self away. And so as the church, as cross bearers, we are called to live a life in the world that is not striving for the powers of this earth, but is instead representative of the rest, the peace that God provides through the resurrection of Jesus and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. That makes me think of, I was listening to uh, to someone giving a message the other day, and they were talking about the importance of non-anxious, a non-anxious presence mm-hmm. yeah. in, in the world and how, again, li- living from this this place of understanding, uh, understanding identity, understanding, you know, our, my, our place in the world. What What is, in, in, how does that then translate into relationship and my involvement in in the community, both, you know, locally, but, but also, uh, globally and yeah, the importance of living from a place of, of shalom, of, yeah. of peace. A friend of mine posted sometime in the last couple of days, uh, he, he, he wrote, um, Jesus told us to die. Why does our angst and energy often act like he told us to win? Hmm. Right. And I think that's, really helpful that the reason we have such angst today in the church in so many different ways on the right and on the left, Mm -hmm. the reason that we have so much energy and fear that is marking the church is because we have somewhere gotten the idea that Jesus promised us that we would win in history, Mm -hmm. that we would rule in history. He did not promise us that. He promised us the cross. That's what he promised us. We will rule with God forever and ever Mm -hmm. when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We will rule with God, but not yet. Yeah. That's not our calling. That's not what Jesus promised us. So if we can grasp again what it means as American Christians who have been shaped for centuries now 
to believe that our birthright is to win, we have to go through a pretty serious discipleship reworking that moves us off of the promises that we will win and that we will have power to shape the culture so that it acts in particular ways that are in line with what we think is the kingdom vision. Mm -hmm. We can move off of that to really, for the first time, maybe in the history of the American church, really take up the cross. Hmm. And I don't know what that looks like really, Ben. I mean, I, I, I would love to have the 10 steps of how to do this. Here's what I do know as I'm praying a whole lot these days, come Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because I don't know that we can do this. Well, no, I know we can't do this yeah. on our own because yeah. we've been trying to do a whole lot through our own strength and power and energy. Yeah. What we haven't done as the American church is really said, come Holy Spirit, mm. put us to death. Mm. Right? Martin Luther said, God kills in order to make alive. Yeah. That this is how God operates. We need to be put to death. Mm-hmm. I need to be put to death that I might be raised again to live in a very different way or to see the church operating in the world in a very different way than what we've been trained to for most of the church's history in the United States. So good. I, I appreciate you spending time with us. Yeah. Uh, There's super fun. There's a lot more to, I feel like unpack. Right. Um, But I, I hope, you know, as you're listening, I hope this, has stirred you up in some ways. I hope it's been encouraging, but I, I also hope that it sparks something in you that will will move you to conversation with those around you. Um, and, and you know, I think, Joel, uh, what you've shared today has really uh, helped give, give a backdrop, give it a, a different, you know, way of thinking about what it might look like for, I would say, us both, as individual followers of Jesus, but we, again, we can't, we're not just individually following Jesus, but again, as, as the church, as the, uh, as the community uh, of God coming together uh, in unity to follow a way that is very different than what we're seeing in the world today. And so I, I appreciate your thoughts. I appreciate your time. Uh, it, again, if you're listening, I want to, I want you to know that in the show notes, I'll uh, provide a link to uh, the Center for Pastor Theologians. Uh, I, I also just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving us your time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Calvary Church, you can visit calvarychurch.us. You can also check us online or in person on Sunday mornings. We encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. It also helps if you leave us a review. And we look forward to having you join us again next Monday.